You may be seated. Does everybody have an outline? If you don't have one, raise your hand. Prentice and Shane in the back have extra copies. They will make sure that, uh, that you receive one. Tonight we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 2. We, uh, we stepped out of Joshua for one week uh, because of uh, our meditations on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to jump back into all of Joshua 2 tonight. And uh, along with that sermon outline and your Bibles open to that chapter of the book of Joshua, we're going to begin with a word of prayer. Father, we gratefully acknowledge that there are many things in your Bible that, that are, are, are beautiful and they impact our lives and they are easily understood. And there are other things, Father, that, that uh, are more difficult for our minds to, to, to understand. And this is why, Father, whenever we approach your word in, in study or in reading it, we always ask you to bless us in the name of Jesus with eyes that see and ears that hear. For we don't want this to be a vain and futile exercise, Father. We want it to be meaningful and significant. We want to, to, to be spiritually fed by this word in such a way that, that we're strengthened and, and we become wiser and, and, and have a greater understanding and degree of discernment when it comes to living our life in this world, the decisions that we have to make, uh, the circumstances that we encounter, and, and all of these things, Father, we, we, seek, we seek a holy wisdom and a holy knowledge and a holy discernment in order to be faithful disciples in all that we do. So, Father, we, we ask You to give us this blessing in this hour. We, we pray for... For, for these words to, to resonate and, and to cause us uh, in, in great awe to ponder joyfully the greatness of Your holiness and faithfulness and kindness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story told about a young girl going out on her first date. And she brings this boy home to meet her parents and he turns out to be exactly every father's worst nightmare. And mom and dad see this young man, and they're a little bit taken aback, but they're polite to him, invite him into the house. But the mother steals a moment away with the daughter, and she says, you know, your father and I are a little bit worried about your boyfriend. She goes, oh, he's, you know, he's a, he's a super guy. I like him a lot. He said, well, you know, we imagine that you do, but he just doesn't seem very nice. He doesn't seem like he's going to be nice to you. And the little girl responds, well, if he wasn't nice, he wouldn't be doing 3,000 hours of community service. <laughs> the point of that story is that it's often difficult to accept and more difficult to love those that we don't approve of. And that's the problem of Rahab. The lesson of Rahab is that God can love someone nobody else approves of. And with the exception of Sarah and, and Mary, I, I, I think I'm probably right on this, uh, even though I don't have anything real scientific, it's more intuitive than anything else. With the exception of Sarah and Mary, I think you would be very hard-pressed to find a woman more praised for her faith in the Bible than Rahab. In the Old and New Testament, she is held up as a great woman of faith Yet, how many little girls do you know of with the name Rahab? Here's the point. 
we have never in this life encountered another human being who does not matter to God. I want to say that again. We have never encountered another human being who does not matter to God. And this comes really into greater clarity when we begin to, to press our mind into what the Bible says about Rahab. Now, what does Joshua, uh, the text of Joshua chapter 2 say or teach us about Rahab? Well, number one, Rahab was a prostitute. Now, we've been out of uh, Joshua for, for about two weeks now as we were, we were thinking about the, the Easter story. Where are we in the story, in the chronology, the history of, of Joshua? Well, we're at that place where after 38 years, Joshua is getting ready to go into the land. He was there four decades earlier. He had gone in with the original 12 spies, and only he and Caleb had come back with a report saying, listen, let's not be intimidated by those giants in the land. This is the land that God has promised to give us. It's a beautiful land. If God said He's going to give it to us, then He's going to give it to us. Let's be faithful. Let's not fear, but let's move forward. And you know what happened? The entire nation decided to rebel against God, and for 38 years they're wandering around the desert. And for 38 years... Joshua has been watching that generation that came out of Egypt die in the sand. And now for the first time in 38 years, he's seeing the borders of the promised land again. And the entire nation is united. Israel is now on the east side of the Jordan River. And Joshua sends two spies into the land. And it appears that he's sending them to get military information on Jericho. Now the 40 years earlier, he had, sent the people, uh, he had been one of the 12 that had gone into the land and they had seen the land and had gotten a report on the land, but it was not a favorable report. It's this land is good, but God has brought us here to die because we can't take it. It's a different kind of thing that's happening now. Joshua is sending these two spies in to get military information and it makes sense if you're, not wanting, if you're wanting to stay under the radar a little bit and you're wanting as a foreigner and speaking a different language to not seem to stand out like a, like a sore thumb, that you would go to a place where lots of men would go from different countries. They would go to the house of a harlot. But here's the thing. While that makes absolute sense, I think God had another reason for sending those spies God had another reason for those spies to be sent, and that reason was Rahab. You see, Jericho represents any and every locality in rebellion to God where there is an impending judgment. You could say a city, you could say culture, you could say era, but Jericho represents those eras, those cultures, those localities, those cities, those neighborhoods, those, those, uh, those, those areas around the world that are in rebellion to God and, and reject God and deny God, and there is an impending judgment. But at the same time, Rahab represents all those of faith, a God of grace intends to spare before that judgment. God found someone in Jericho to spare, just like He found someone in Sodom to spare. There are a lot of similarities between this story and the one that we find in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, where Lot and his family are saved by God from the, the impending desolation and, and, and uh, uh, judgment, looming judgment, that's about to fall on Sodom. 
Now, what looks like a coincidence, I think, is providence. In a city the size of Jericho, where, you know, Jericho is, has, because of its size, is going to have a standing military. And because of its size, it's going to have a system of intelligence seekers, spies, that are going to be throughout the land gathering intel for, for the king. And Jericho has seen that the million-plus people of Israel had gathered themselves up as a critical mass to cross the Jordan River just on the east side. And they are, they are in a state of emergency. And the king has his security forces at DEFCON 1. The color is white. The phrase is cocked pistol if you were in the United States. It, it means that war is imminent. Because these Canaanite spies are watching Israel. And for this just to happen, that they just happen to come into the home of the one prostitute who is willing to risk her own life for them, seems a little bit stretched. God had a reason for sending the spies, and it was Rahab. And one of the lessons that I think that we should be very quick to gather out of this is that we should not be so quick to assume that someone is not interested in a relationship with God or that someone is outside of the, the possibility of a relationship with God based on nationality or profession or appearance. The amazing thing is that Rahab had an interest in God. In the middle of that Canaanite pantheon of gods, which was multiple, and as uh, we talked in the young professional class this morning, the young adult class this morning, you, you know, the, the, the real battle was not going to be the war, the physical, literal war. The battle that was going to, to, you know, that was going to haunt Israel for all of its history in Canaan was the battle of spiritual warfare, the temptation to, to give in and to syncretize, that is, to blend those, that Canaanite pantheon of gods in with worship of the one true creator God of the universe. And, and Rahab, to have an interest in God in that kind of a culture where she doesn't have a lot of information about God, but to have a faith and an interest in God is an amazing thing. But you know what's more amazing to me is that God had an interest in her. If God did not value flawed things, my friends, then nobody would be saved. Nobody would be saved. And yes, Rahab was a prostitute. There have been... Uh, over the years, attempts to kind of, kind of downplay that the, the, the wording of the, the, the Hebrew word for, for harlot and, and try to make it the keeper of an inn. But you know, when the, when the New Testament refers to her, it just makes it pretty evident that she was not a person of, of good sexual reputation and moral, morality. She was a prostitute. She was a harlot. But God cherished her. Rahab was a prostitute, but number two, Rahab lied. You know, the Bible's pretty clear on telling lies. Leviticus 19, right there at the very beginning of the history of Israel, do not lie. In the New Testament, the same kind of ethic carries forward in terms of the way that we relate to one another and the ethic that we have in the kingdom of God. Colossians chapter 3, but you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Don't be angry. Get rid of rage and malice and slander. Get rid of the filthy language from your lips. And verse 9, do not lie to each other. It's pretty cut and dry. Do not tell lies. But Rahab does not tell the truth when it comes to her knowledge of where the Israelites are. She is the very one who has hidden them among the stalks of flax that are on the roof. 
Now, earlier in the lesson, I mentioned that both the Old Testament and the New Testament praise Rahab. And that's true. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Some of the translations have the word unbelieving. You go to the very next book, James chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did. She was considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, both of those verses say that Rahab had put her faith in God. And when you read Joshua chapter 2, it becomes evident that she put her faith in God even before the spies arrived. Go back to Joshua chapter 2. Look at verse 9. She said to them, I know that the Lord God has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Verse 11, For the Lord your God is God in heaven and on the earth below. And so by the time the spies get to her home, Rahab has already changed her allegiance even before the Israelites crossed the Jordan to possess the land. And in faith, she is protecting the spies from detection. She is protecting the spies from being captured. I, I think it's very much the same way that German Christians in the, 19, the late 1930s and the 1940s uh, lied to the Nazis in order to protect the Jews that they were hiding in their homes. And connecting with this and developing it a little further, Rahab did have that faith. Her first words to the spies are, I know. Look at verse 9. She's hidden them. She's already, she already knows what she believes. She goes to the, that, that night she goes to the roof. She says to those spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know what happened at the Red Sea. I know what the Lord did to Sion and what the Lord did to Og and, and how He destroyed the two kings of the Amor, Amorites east of the Jordan, how He utterly destroyed them. Now what is happening here is that her faith is being based on realities, truths that have taken place in reality. Not just good things, but true things. Her faith is grounded in the specific actions of God on behalf of His people. And you know, the same kind of thing is true today. Our faith is based... I mean, we believe in a virgin birth. We believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. We believe that Jesus performed miracles. We believe that Jesus died on the cross, and ironically, today being Easter, we, we believe that our, you know, our faith on a day like this remembers a miracle that happened in reality 2,000 years ago when God intervened on behalf of His people and provided salvation and provided forgiveness and provided that bridge over the gulf that spanned that, that great distance between His holiness and our iniquity in order for us to find relationship with Him. She does the same thing. There are truths that she has learned about God and she believes them. And it's a saving faith based on the truth that God has entered into history and has performed these acts on behalf of His people. And you'll notice that you know, in her mind it's already settled. She speaks of the Lord already giving the land to His people. That it's already an accomplished fact. It's already a settled fact. I know that the Lord has given you this land. Verse 9. And, the re you know, the ironic thing here is, too, is that the rest of the people in Canaan had the same information she did. And she persuades, I think, the rest of her family to join her. 
Because had they not, they could have been the ones that turned those spies in. Saving faith is going to act on what it knows about God, and in so doing, it is going to take a stand against the surrounding culture. This is the way that, that, that Rahab's faith stands out. She is in the middle of that, that, that Canaanite pantheon of gods. And that's the way it's been for centuries. And, and these people have worshipped all kinds of God her, her whole life. Her knowledge of things spiritual is steeped in, in a pantheon, a, 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 a gigantic, a, a multiple array of, of gods that explain the way that the universe and the earth works for her. And what she is doing is basically, in essence, saying, because I know that God is the creator of heaven and this earth below, and that He's given you the land, and I know what He's done to all of these other gods, or, or excuse me, these other kings, I believe in Him. And I don't consider myself to be a part of Jericho. In a sense, what she has done is she has committed some, uh, you know, in a sense, treason. She says, I choose God over Canaan. And what she's doing from a spiritual standpoint is that she is aligning herself with the unseen rather than the seen. She's teaching us something important about our own faith, church. Francis Schaeffer wrote a commentary on Joshua, kind of an apologetic on, uh, on Joshua, the book of Joshua. But in this book he says, you know, it is absolutely ridiculous for a Christian to not expect to be in spiritual warfare while he or she is living in enemy territory. You have to to expect that kind of battle for your soul. And the question that we have to ask is, do we live as if the present culture of darkness that we live in is going to be judged and has been judged by God? In closing, just a, just a word about that scarlet cord. You know, there's a scarlet thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation. God kills animals in order to provide clothing for Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. Then in the book of Exodus, you have the Passover lamb that is killed and the blood put over the door in order to save the firstborn. And Egypt is destroyed and, and Israel is liberated from its slavery. You have for years and years and years, you have the countless sacrifices at the temple in which animals are killed so that the sins of, of human beings can be forgiven for one year. And then it goes all the way to a cross on a hill, Jerusalem, about 2,000 years ago, the cross of Calvary. And that scarlet th uh, cord that hangs in her window is just part of a scarlet thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. I remember uh, probably, it was probably 11 years ago when James Tart was up in the baptistry and he was baptizing his sister Amanda. And, and uh, you know, with, with a passion that James can muster, you know, he looks his sister in the eye after having studied with her and having led her to faith in Christ. He looks at her and he says, Amanda, in this baptism, God is providing a way for you to be rescued through the blood of Jesus. I'll never forget what he said to her. 
And that she, along with so many others, myself included, over the decades of this, this generation of this era, have been a part of that scarlet thread that has run from Genesis to our present time, where the blood of Jesus is now better than the blood of bulls and goats, being offered once and for all through Jesus, who is our high priest, who makes propitiation for our sins, who has gone into that holy place, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but His own blood, in order for those who have faith to find themselves coming out from under the wrath of God that is going to fall upon all those that have not have not through saving faith given themselves in humility to God, but in rebellion, in a lack of discernment, in, in, in wickedness, in iniquity, in false thinking, in false thoughts, have not allowed themselves through the conviction of the Holy Spirit as well. Jesus said the Spirit comes and it will convict people of sin and of judgment and of righteousness in John chapter 16. And not recognizing that that impending judgment lost the salvation of their soul. If you believe this culture, this era, this generation, like every other generation before it and those that come after it, if there are those that come after it, how do you, if you believe it will be judged, how do you plan to escape it? Do you stand with faith with God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth? Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And if there's any way that our church can minister to you through, through administering baptism to you in which your sins can be washed away, you're participating in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. As He died to sin, you died to sin. As He was raised from the grave three days later after His death to newness of life, you too are raised from the, the waters of baptism as a new creation, a new creature. Or if there are ways that, that our church can encourage you and pray for you and, and help you to take your stand to take your stand against this culture and, and, to, and to live successfully in the confrontations that we have every single day with the kingdom of darkness, to live fruitfully in the kingdom of light. We want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and sing together. I stand amazed in the presence.